0: Still in uh, Luke 11, uh, in the middle of it now. So, uh, if you would turn to verse 27, that's where we're going to pick up. And let's see how far do we want to read. We'll just read the first two verses and get started there. Now, remember the context of things is uh, Jesus' disciples had come to him and asked him how to pray. Um, there was a situation involving a fellow that comes that had a demon. You remember that fellow was mute and There was sort of that Jewish tradition that um, you had to get the demon to tell you his name and then you could command the demon to come out. Well, this guy was mute and Jesus commands the demon out anyway. And now they were a little bit freaked out by that and wondering um, how could he possibly be doing this. I know it must be by the power of Satan. Satan gave him the power to deliver and Jesus said, that's silly. And they had that sort of a conversation. So there's sort of, you know, all that is going on here, a little bit of tension in the air. And then we come to this interruption. I, I wrote in my notes, a kind interruption. You know, there are some interruptions you don't want to have. Other ones you're like, oh, that's nice, thanks. You know, I don't mind that. So let's read it. It says, as, these, as he excuse me, said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So this is a nice lady, you know, she's recognizing good things are happening, and so she just simply, uh, basically she references his mom, but essentially saying you're a great guy um, here. Now, you juxtapose the two, and you got all these people that are accusing him of being empowered by Satan to accomplish what he is accomplishing, and the others that are saying things like hey circus boy, do a trick for us, we saw that last week, and then this lady coming along and saying, you know, you're a remarkable fella. Um, you know, obviously, we want to draw attention to the fact that she is kind of drawing attention to his mom. And we know that there are some within quote unquote Christianity that have taken that so far. And um, you know, sorry, Mary Ollatree, Mary Oletree, uh, You know, where they go so far and Mary is Mary- almost Idol- worshipped.
1: Idol-tree. Idol-tree?
0: Yeah. yeah. Where Mary is almost worshipped by some uh, there is actually a theory that some hold where she is a co-redemptrix that together working with Jesus for salvation and so on. That's certainly not what this lady is getting at. Um, but I do think, so we have on one side the Catholic Church that perhaps goes too far with Mary, and some within the Protestant Church, I think, go too far without Mary, if you will. You know, that we Somehow we, we don't like Mary because other people have you know, gone overboard. Well, it wasn't Mary's fault. Mary was the handmaiden of the Lord, she was a servant of the Lord, and she said, all right, I don't understand it all, but I'm open to be used by you, you know, so in that sense she is blessed, um, and certainly she gave birth to a remarkable son, who is what this lady is drawing attention to. All right, let's move on here, uh, we're going to read about the sign of Jonah verse 29 Now when the crowds were increasing he began to say This generation is an evil generation it seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh so will this son excuse me so will the son of man be to this generation The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So going back to the opening verse, the crowds are increasing. More and more people are around. And Jesus now, rather than being enamored by the crowds, uh, he knows the true motivations of the crowds and why people are coming out. And notice this statement. He says, this generation is an evil generation. It's coming out for a sign. It seeks a sign. It wants to see me do tricks. It wants to see miracles and things like that. And he said, And they're not getting a sign. He says, No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Now he begins the sermon, if you will, by calling them an evil generation. You know, that's like starting your sermon and poking people in the eye, you know, and so he does. And you know, but he knows that the crowd needs to be challenged. You know, we had a saying when we went and did our mission project in Belize, the men's ministry, went, which was a wonderful trip, by the way. And we, we said, you know, the law to the self-righteous, grace to the sinner, if you will. So, you know, you come up, you start talking to a person, and a person's like, yeah, I'm a great guy. I'm a wonderful person. Then you sort of reveal to them, no, you're not. You've broken the law. Here's how. You know, but then the person that is like, yeah, I am a horrible person. God can never love me. You can skip all that. I don't even need to prove to you you're a sinner. You already know. And we could just come to grace. So you need to know your crowd. And Jesus knows his crowd. And he knows they needed to be challenged. And even really challenged as to why they were coming out to see him. Jesus didn't come primarily to heal people. And that's why some people came to him. Jesus didn't come primarily to feed people. Like the 5,000. And then the next day they come and they're looking for more food. Jesus didn't come to take on or over worldly governments. As... Some people thought he did, remember the case of the taxes and so on. But Jesus came to bring people to a relationship with the Father. And so he's going to poke them in the eye here about why it is they're coming out to see him, that they need to be challenged about that. So let me ask you a question. I gave you some examples. What would you say today are some of the, quote-unquote, wrong reasons people are coming out to see
2: Jesus? Materialism, still... There are pastors and priests out there that say, you know, you pray to God, you're going to get your Rolls Royce and your house and the best of everything. Mm-hmm. And people come coming, seeking that.
3: Okay, yep. yep. Business connections. I have a few churches where
2: that is an issue. <laughs> Yeah, what what might that look like? I mean, it wasn't it wasn't wasn't rampant in the church, but there were people that were coming to church and trying to leverage their relationships in the church. They weren't really interested in church; they were interested in business, building yeah. up business, sure. personal yeah. business, or
0: contacts, things like yeah. that. Yep.
2: Yeah, that's frustrating.
0: <laughs> okay. Anything else? Disasters,
1: like a lot of like national disasters, for people mm-hmm. coming to church because they're like. That's what, when they start seeking God. Like, like why is this happening? Mm-hmm. They just
0: want some answers. Yeah, no, is that necessarily negative?
1: No. Okay. But
3: that's another reason people still... Oh, I got you. They're still seeking signs. Mm-hmm. I was just uh, listening to MacArthur's, uh, you know, a Strange Fire Conference mm-hmm. on the charismatic movement. He said that there's something like... Five hundred million around the world in this charismatic movement, you know, with the falling down and the mm-hmm. being slain in the spirit and all that. So the, the the attraction is the signs, the emotionalism, the so-called miracles or whatever. It uh, is pretty interesting. But yeah, no, I think they're still seeking signs. of it. He compared that. There were five he said five hundred million. That's half a billion people in this movement. And he compared it to uh, like uh, Catholics, which is like when do you say five hundred thousand or something? Five hundred thousand Catholics? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's more than that. Yeah. But you yeah. know, but the the the, you know, the the bottom line was that the attraction to this signs and emotion movement is is uh, is phenomenal, mm-hmm. more than any other. Uh, any other um, either Protestant or, or Catholic or I think they said there were some like fourteen thousand
2: Mormons, for example, or I shouldn't quote them. He keeps looking right over. Here. <laughs> I don't know. But, but I do remember the half a billion because that's yeah. easy. Yeah. So yeah, signs
0: okay. of favors. Well, even think of the way some people present the gospel. You know, are you are you sad? Are you lonely? Do you need a friend? Jesus wants to be your friend, you know what I mean? And and so people come to Jesus to have a friend or whatever, and He didn't really come to be our friend, you know. He will be our friend certainly. So, you know. So anyway, there's there's different ways, and I, I think Jesus here makes it clear. Well, we see His real reason for coming is that He would bring people into relationship with Him. Now He makes this statement. He says that the only sign that they're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. So, you have 25 words, no more. What would you say? Is the story of Jonah in 25 words.
2: Is that have to be full
1: sentence?
0: <laughs> no, we, I just want to be able to, like, I never heard of this story before. I want to know the story by you saying 25 words. If you want to add periods and mm-hmm. thus it's up to you. you. Don't have to count. Character count. I'm going to count.
2: Ruth Jenner, wants to. Jonah ran away from God and was called. To to be in fish, to learn
0: that he cannot run away from God. And he went and talked to the people at Nineveh. So he was in valley for three days and three nights. Okay. Everybody
2: agree that's the story, basically? It is the story, but is that the sign? I mean, I understand he used the
1: Because
2: I was thinking the other part of the sign is Jonah, Jonah preached to the people
3: of Nineveh and they repented and
1: God relented. Yeah. But that's stories. not a sign.
2: The sign is it's in the belly of the whale. Yeah. I mean, I know that's what Jesus said the sign was, but there's also another the part of his story.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, well let's
0: take a look at the story then. Verse 30 says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Mm. Now... So we know that Jonah was swallowed by the great fish. Um, how did the great fish get to Jonah?
1: God
0: provided the great fish. Well, yeah, I got all that stuff. I mean, but did he like come onto the boat and take Jonah off the boat? Mm-hmm. Jonah was in the water. Why was Jonah in the water?
3: Because people were scared. Mm-hmm. They were wanted to satisfy the ocean.
0: He was thrown into the water, you said? Yeah. What did Jonah say? To the men, and maybe ladies, I don't know, on the boat. It's my Can bad. Throw me in? It's
2: my bad. <laughs> yeah. It's my bad. So, Jonah,
0: Jonah gave his life, if you will, quote-unquote, to appease God's wrath. This is all because of me. The right. storm is nuts like it is. You know, I did these things wrong or whatever. Throw me in, problem will be solved. And so, in that sense, there's a sign that Jesus gave his life to appease God's wrath. Okay, so we see that. Now... Ruth's like, I don't think so. Three days, three nights. Yes, you're right. So now he's in this belly of the whale. Three days, three nights, or great fish, whatever you want to say. You always think of the Inherit the Wind movie. And that's like, I got gotcha, you, you know, at the very end or whatever. It's a great fish, you know. So anyhow, um, then he comes to the land. He's thrown up onto the shores mm-hmm. there of Nineveh. And that is sort of like his resurrection experience. Right? Would you agree with that? Kinda.
2: Where mm-hmm, okay. he got thrown up, yeah. Uh, I don't know if he got thrown up in Nineveh, but he definitely got. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure of that either yeah. uh, when
0: I said that, but he was dead and now he's alive. Right. I guess you might say. He's he yeah he descended to the deep and now he's yeah. Okay, so both of those you may say are sort of the sign, death, my death, on, on behalf of that guy resurrected, coming. And what was his message? Repent. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Forty days.
0: Remember, Jonah couldn't stand the people in Nineveh. Didn't like him. So Jonah didn't beat around the bush. You know, Jonah was like, I think it was more like, you're a goner. You know what I mean? <laughs> All of you. I And I'm glad about it, too. Um, repent, you know, or else. It was, a, it was a very clear repent or else. It was an unabashed mm-hmm. message. Uh, and that's Jesus' message, too, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he doesn't beat around the bush, and he's not trying to... Oh no, people are rejecting what I have to say. Because Jesus is not so interested in you accepting his words as truth. He knows that they're true. And so he just gives them out there. And people are going to take them or reject them. And so, uh, the sign of Jonah. Now verse 31, we'll come back to Jonah in a minute. Verse 31 says, Now the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, the Queen of the South is also referred to in the Bible as the Queen of Sheba. The ends of the earth were somewhere, it's believed she lived somewhere in the middle of Africa, or in a portion of Africa, um, and she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, we have that recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 10. You can go back, you can read that there. Um, that's approximately 1,500 miles away. You know, Again, we don't know exactly where she lived, but this woman traveled some 1,500 miles because she had heard of an amazing thing, an amazing guy, this fellow Solomon. And so she wanted to go and she wanted to hear. And Jesus makes this point, is that this woman was willing to travel 1,500 miles to hear Solomon, and if she could speak to the people of Jesus' generation, what message do you think she would give to them? Okay, good. (laughs) It's an easy one here. Well, I wrote this down. I put... I have a little more words for her. That she would say something like, shame on you. I traveled 1,500 miles to hear Solomon, and you won't even take a moment to listen to this guy who's in your backyard. Instead, you want him to do tricks for you, and all these fancy little things. Shame on you, she might say. I I don't know if that's exactly what she would say, but something to that effect is the point that Jesus is making. Now, he also goes back to the people of Nineveh in verse 32, and he said, "The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here." Now, remember, Jonah didn't like the people of Nineveh. So it was, in many ways, it was against his liking. But the people listened to what he had to say and repented. Uh, the Queen of Sheba, if those uh, like the Queen of Sheba, if if the people of of uh, Jonah's day could just of Nineveh could just simply come find these people at Jesus' day, they would say something like, what's the matter with you? Listen to the guy, and listen to the truth. We listened, and we were far from God, uh, listen, is all they would, like Scott's song from uh, the Fair,
2: other night, teenage.
0: listen, something like that, if, if you weren't at like you have no idea what we're
2: talking about.
0: Alright, so that's sort of the sign idea there. Any thoughts on that that you want to address or share? So which
2: sign is it? Is yes. it all of
0: them? Well, as far as Jonah is concerned, yeah. I think it's thrown into the water and appeasing the wrath of God.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But resurrection works too. Mm-hmm. I don't think well, we should start two denominations
3: over this. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> <don't believe> that's <laughs> significant. Yeah. That would be visible. A visible sign? The visible sign, that, you know, the resurrection. Mm-hmm. I think to me there I would say, it, 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 Jonah was the the sign unto the Ninevites, and I don't think the Ninevites per se knew. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. He was casting. Jesus so.
2: later or someplace else says the sign of Jonah, just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days in the belly of the earth. So Jesus makes that direct comparison. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I kind of agree with you that the the preaching and repenting and the mercy of God is sort of a, a stronger sign. But I'm not going to vote against Jesus. Well, I think, <laughs> but I think the point that uh, Jay made was they didn't see him thrown into the water. Right. They don't right. know anything about right. that. Okay. So when, if this
1: says
2: that if a sign to the people of Nineveh, they didn't have that part of the story. Right, they correct? only have... Not necessarily. because he's coming. still at seaweed we've
0: Well, they do say that you know the gastric juices and all that sort of stuff would have caused his hair to fall out and his skin to turn white and all this and you know that'd be pretty freaky. That guy coming walking up on the shores and <laughs> saying God this coming, you know, and I, whatever you need, I'll do whatever you say. All right, let's look at the next three or four verses. This is uh, verse thirty-three. The danger of spiritual blindness is what I've uh, wrote down for this. Mm -hmm. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If, then, your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light so no one lighting a lamp puts it under a basket Uh, that doesn't make any sense does it you you want it to be shining brightly so people can benefit from it here so you know we sing songs like this little light of mine I'm going to let it shine and, and so on is that the context of what Jesus is talking about you know the light of him in our lives and so on or could we be looking at something different here What do you you think after just first thinking through that verse?
3: I guess the first thing I think of, is it in context of the previous verses? I think it is. Right. So what would that be significant? Because we we typically apply this to ourselves, right? You know, like, uh, so I'm a Christian now, and I should tell others, and Mm right? And let my light shine. Right, and let my light shine. But I guess um, it could be that Christ is revealing himself, I guess. And why would God send the light and not show it? Okay. That kind of thinking?
0: Yeah. I see it this way. I see Christ is revealing himself. That's the light. What are these people doing with the light? Mm-hmm. They're snuffing it out, essentially, uh, by putting a basket on it or putting it down in the basement or something where nobody's at or whatever it may be. So, Because of their hard-heartedness, these listeners of Jesus, they're taking this light and they're snuffing it out by putting it under a basket or covering it up. Um, So the light would be Jesus' message, Jesus' working, the things that God is revealing, the kingdom of God is at hand, and so on. Um, And they're not receiving. Certainly not displaying it, um, and so on. What do you think about that? Does that seem like reasonable? No. Okay, So, now we're believers. I know everyone in here, we're all in this room, believers. Um, with that context of things, because again, normally we take it like Jay says, I've got to be a witness, i got to be a light, you know, that kind of thing. But from the context of the light is, is not so much us in the scenario, but kind of God revealing himself and his workings in our life. Um, what are some ways that we can put sort of that light under a basket and deny what it's supposed to be?
2: Not trusting. Not trusting him.
0: Okay. Yep. And how does that squelch the light, so to speak?
1: Because you try to do it all on your own strength.
0: Mm-hmm. And how does that normally work out?
2: Not well. <laughs> no it doesn't well yeah <gasps> okay isn't there isn't I mean if, if we're gonna say that Christ is the light isn't there a, like a more fundamental issue that he's sitting on here you know if so like second part of 34 so seeing Jesus for who he is basically. <laughs> salvation yes salvation you'll have light in you no salvation there is no light in you it's all darkness so he's basically saying if you wanted to boil it down make sure that you're really saved okay yeah. i mean i'm just and then uh, yeah you know and if the whole body's full of light having no part dark i guess that's more of a that's the way it should be that's not necessarily the way it always is So even if you're saved, you can still have the dark parts inside, but it doesn't have to be that way. But I thought the fundamental foundation was... Salvation. salvation Salvation-focused as opposed to sanctification-focused.
0: Okay. I wasn't seeing it as sanctification-focused as much as... The light exposes the darkness, if you will. Um, so f- initially for these guys, I'm trying to share with you how to get saved. Mm-hmm. And here it is, but they won't they won't receive it, they won't take it, so they're not going to have salvation. Um, then I went another step toward us. You know, when God's trying to do a work in our heart, He's trying to teach us things. So maybe it has something to do with stepping out in faith. And we refuse to go there. You know, I don't, I'm a, if I don't have it all spelled out for me black and white, then I'm not going down that way. Well, in that sense, I see it as almost a squelching of that light and what God wants to do in us. You know what I mean? So is that different from how you originally thought I or thought as far as sanctification?
1: Or do you see that as. Well, a I mean, I guess
2: sanctification in the bigger sense of outworking of your salvation.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you think we can do the latter, what I just described? Mm-hmm. Sort of, kind of limit God and limit our faith and all that. I'm reading a book now by George Mueller, that uh, and George Mueller was like they called him the apostle of faith. I never realized that. Um, and this was a guy who just, I'm like, you're crazy, man! Like you can't live that way, you know. And he did. And just how God came through for him in the most remarkable of ways, you know. And and I just don't do that well. You know? no. so.
3: I, I, I was thinking something, and I don't know if it's somewhat. Along the lines or not, but I was also thinking about how we present the gospel um, as well. So we might say, you know, like you were saying earlier, like you know, you need a friend, you know, and and that's it's not the whole gospel, so to speak. It's it's very small part, mm-hmm. and by that we're kind of limiting, I guess, how God redeems a person in some yeah. way. I don't know how else to describe it other than it just seems like there's this if if you don't understand the full gospel so to speak then you don't live as if mm-hmm. under the full gospel in uh he's my good luck charm he's the you know the guy who gives
0: me stuff or... in 1st Corinthians in chapter 1 and a little bit later Paul talks about uh You know, I determined amongst you that I wasn't going to come in all sorts of wisdom and things like this, but I was just going to bring you the message of the cross, you know. And I I believe that's where it says, Mm -hmm. it's foolishness to those who are perishing. And one commentator I was reading was taking those words and comparing them with the timeline in Acts. I only read one guy that said this, and so I was sort of like, oh, that's interesting, but I wasn't, like, convinced Um, But he compared it with the timeline in Acts. And just before Paul went into (laughs) Corinth, he was in Athens. And I don't remember exactly why this commentator felt what it was about Athens. It didn't go well. um, But that Paul in Athens sort of tried to convince logically the people of Athens Jesus. and kind of got into their game, uh, the debating and the philosophies and stuff, and it didn't go so well, and then determined in Corinth, you know what, I'm not going down there, I'm just telling you the truth, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, that makes sense, it's reasonable, I don't know if that's exactly what happened. Um, yeah, but I, so going back to what he did, if he did that, what he did in Athens, there's this sort of, almost like a watering down of the real reality and the truth and the impact of it. That it it almost you water it down so much, it's not the real thing anymore.
2: You know. Mm-hmm. Well, he reasoned in Athens. That's like that's a great chapter. That whole 17th chapter of 17th. I think so. Yeah. Where he basically lays out from the creation to, you know, the the cross, the gospel. hmm And um, that's not a bad thing to do, but <laughs> maybe he knew his audience better in Corinth than he knew. Well these guys already know about all about sin and debauchery, so I'll just stay. With I'll the just measures. go right there, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> we used to use that section. We when I was in graduate school, we they had this David Davis, California was a very liberal city. Very crunchy chew we used to call it. Um, and they had this festival called the Whole Earth Festival. And it was everything you could imagine, the smell of patul oil everywhere. You know, people doing drum circles, all this stuff. And we would have a booth there, but we would go out and hand out flyers. And we would usually use that section on the little flyer that we would hand out. Because we realized, you know what? These people are thinking all this stuff we need to reestablish. There's a God. He created everybody. He determined where they live. And now we call you to repent. Because they were on on this more intellectual kind of Mm -hmm. setting. You know, it was plus or minus effectiveness, but yeah.
0: I admire that. All right, well, let's look at verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Um, You know, a person, when a person has an unhealthy eye, the idea here is blindness here. Uh, And so Jesus is not talking physically, he's talking spiritually. We're talking about people that are spiritually blind. And I think this is a statement to the people he's talking to. In a sense, you could say Jesus is saying, you must be spiritually blind if you would think that a guy that delivers a demon is empowered by the head of the demons. That just doesn't make sense. You must be spiritually blind if you want to come out and watch me do magic tricks and circus tricks here. And so he's, I think that's what he's pointing to. And then 35, therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Now, there's, So there's two reasons someone will be in darkness. One, there's no source of light from the outside. Um, well, that's not the case because Jesus is sitting there right next to him. And the other one is that there must be darkness on the inside, and that is the case in this particular instance here. These people are dark, and as John says in John 1, the people love the darkness rather than the light. They don't want to come to the light because it exposed them of that darkness. Um, you know, there are those increasingly that teach, even in the church, that all of us have a little spark of light inside of us. You know, you just got to find that spark or whatever it may be. The reality is we don't have a spark of light within, inside of us here, Uh, and we must expose ourselves, or if we're talking to other people, they need to be exposed to the light of God's Word, or they'll remain in darkness. So that's why we go forth into all the world, uh, and to our place of business, and around the corner, and to our families, and all these things, because people don't just come to the light kind of thing, or the the light in them gets brighter somehow. They need to hear the Word of God, expose their darkness. So he said in verse 36, "If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light." So when God's word, when God's word is present in our lives, we come to church. We're hearing the word there. We're reading the word for ourselves. We're listening to it. We're having conversations about it, and all these things. Mm-hmm. As God's word comes into our lives, and we're acknowledging His working around us. Remember, that's part of the problem of this story here then the spiritual blinders, I would say, are progressively lifted in our lives. You know, so there's that come-to-Jesus situation, obviously, where He opens our eyes to understand. But even after that, I still had areas of blindness, just ways I had done it for 20 years or 18 years, and now I'm starting to read into God's Word, and I'm like, oh, I should probably stop that thing over there. I'm coming to an understanding, God's revealing, and all that's coming to His Word. So when we neglect the intake of God's Word in our lives, we do our walks with Christ a great disservice.
1: Mm-hmm. If
0: you want to be in a good place with the Lord, then bring it. take the Word into your life. Very prayerfully meditate on the Word of God, but bring it in your life, because that exposes darkness even in the deepest places of our hearts. Okay? And I'm reading this book now. You recommended it, uh, the R.A. Torrey book, uh, How to Bring a Man to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody read it? Really cool. This guy is the best man. He's I don't know when he wrote hundred years ago or something, but he just says, if you're talking to a person who thinks this, show them this verse and make them read it aloud. And like, oh, that's interesting. And ask them, you know, who sinned, and ask him again and again until they say I have sinned, and say, and what is the pen and and he just takes them through <laughs> verses like that. And what does that passage say? The penalty of a person who is a sinner is. It's death, right. Do you want that? And I was like, this guy's awesome. you know. But he did it with like a 100 a verses or something. I don't want to exaggerate or something. But read the book. You'll, you'll be blessed. I'm, I was like, I don't know if I can memorize all, all those verses. That's <laughs> tough, you know. But anyway, it was really good. But he takes them through the word of God.
2: Wasn't there also a positive ex- aspect of having light as well? It's not just ex- exposing sin areas or trouble areas, but it's also showing you the right way to live. In just a positive way sure yeah absolutely. you, know, you have two choices but there's a spirit you know there's a spiritually discernible better way to do things
0: hmm absolutely all right let's take a look at this last is it the last section yep woe to the Pharisees and lawyers now while Jesus was speaking a Pharisee asked him to dine with him so he went in and he reclined at the table The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, Don't get me started on you lawyers. <laughs> sort of. He said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary... Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. So Jesus goes to this dinner, or whatever meal it is, he goes to a meal with this Pharisee at this Pharisee's house here, Um, we have instances in the scripture where Jesus is invited to a meal with, and the guy really doesn't have a good intention by bringing him there, it's really to get him in trouble or whatever, we don't know if that's this Pharisee's motivation or not, Uh, we don't know if he wanted to learn from this teacher that has traveled through this particular community. In some cases, an important person like a Pharisee was sort of obligated to invite sort of an important visitor to the town, to their home. So we don't necessarily know uh, why he has invited uh, this man there. But I appreciate that Jesus went to his house because typically Jesus didn't get along too well with Pharisees and yet this guy invites him and so he says, yeah, because this guy needs to know and hear just like everybody else Jesus is encountering. So he goes there and then it says that the Pharisee is astonished because Jesus doesn't wash his hands uh, or whatever before dinner. Now, I think a lot of moms have used this <laughs> passage, you know what I mean, um, here. This is not talking about mom's instructions to go wash up before dinner, uh, but what we're talking about is ceremonial cleansings, uh, and I wanted to read this, it's a, length, it's, a, it's a kind of long quote, but I wanted to read it to you to sort of describe what's happening here. For these ceremonial washings, special stone vessels of water were kept, because ordinary water might be unclean. In performing the ceremonial washing, you had to take at least enough of the water to fill one and one-half eggshells. You started by pouring the water over your hands, starting at the fingers and running downs, down toward the wrist. Then you cleanse each palm by rubbing the fist of the other hand into it. Then you poured water over your hands again, this time from the wrist toward the fingers. A
1: mm-hmm.
0: really strict Jew would do this not only before the meal, but also between each course. The rabbis were deadly serious about this, and they said that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. A rabbi who once failed to do this was considered excommunicated, and another rabbi was imprisoned by the Romans, and he used his ration of water for ceremonial cleansing instead of drinking, nearly dying of thirst, but being regarded as a great hero amongst the Jews and I think Jesus's point here in this not washing and I don't know if Jesus ever washed properly like this or not did all this kind of stuff here but he clearly in this case he's like I'm not doing that and I'm gonna make a point out of it here Um, if these people had been that concerned about cleansing their hearts as they were about cleansing their hands Just imagine what sort of people they would be, you know, as far as before God is concerned. And so Jesus is drawing attention to the error, if you will, of them paying more attention to the exterior than to the heart. And I think within Christianity today, the Christian church today, it's a lot easier for us to just tell people, take care of the outside. I can see that. And it's hard for a heart to change. Hearts don't change. Like that, you know, yeah. even our hearts. We maybe we have good hearts and we want the Lord to do a good work within us, and yet we find, man, my heart is just wicked. And I keep going back to those things. And change takes a long time. But outward change can be something that is done relatively quickly, can it? Mm-hmm. Sure. We can put enough pressure on people or enough pressure on ourselves to change that outward, but not so much the inward. So I have a question here. What would you say are some present day examples of how people in the church are more interested in the exterior than the interior.
2: How you dress, the place you put on. Okay.
0: Now, should we be concerned with things like modesty and dressing appropriately and things like that? Okay, so, where's the line between going too far, you know, like dictating certain things, but how do you know the line?
2: It, it's a really hard because mm-hmm. you know, there's still a lot of disasters out there, so you can't wear pants if you're a woman. Mm-hmm. And,
0: you know, there's something to that if
2: it looks like a man's pants, but there are styles that look more like women. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. Um, okay. You want know, to dress modestly, but you don't have to <coughs> wear it from the greatest uh, fashion
1: model stores. Or, I mean, pennies is just as good as Warren Taylor. Charrington, what do you mean? Know, uh, uh, I think it's a lot to do with the tent
2: as well. And if you're, if your intent on showing off office that you're gonna look a certain way, mm-hmm. uh, even if you just say yes to appeasing uh, your mom, and dressing a certain way, it still shows an action, in maybe the way the person uh, behaves or you whatever know, flirtatiousness or whatever. i would have to say it's definitely hard to make the concrete line, but uh, you know it's. And I think a spiritual person would be able to see the intent pretty good. Okay. I and mean, I think about uh, particularly like the black church. Yeah, they're they're dressed, the women are dressed in dresses, The boy, they're dressed to the hilt. You know, they're going to church, <coughs> not the big hat and the, you know, and it may be, and it, may, it may be, it may be the right type of clothing, but, but like what you said, it's, it seems like a little, what's the intent? You know, flamboyant and and okay. I don't know if that's prescribed by, is that the expectation that that church has? That yeah, I don't know. That you you know, and the men wear ties. and suits. It's a good thing we don't do that. Yeah, but, <laughs> but
0: again, you, you go that, down that thing and you say, okay, so I'm not tempted by what you're wearing. Right. But is your heart still right sure. by what you're choosing to wear? And why did you put on that particular thing? Was it to draw attention to yourself and that you're the greatest?
1: I'm sorry. No, I think we just said with a heart. I think that's. I don't know that we should be so concerned about what someone's wearing, um, because I think if you're nurturing this person in Christ and basically loving them and then t- showing you know teaching them the word, the truth, and they're learning the word and the truth, and mm-hmm. as they get to know Jesus, I don't. I think the Holy Spirit will work on their heart. I mean and They'll mm. decide for themselves, but you know I, I don't think that I don't know I just I think we the whole thing is just work with their heart. You know? Well, what you,
2: wasn't your question about what's what is the church doing now that I'm trying to think of outside. some examples?
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: I just yeah. I just think that yeah I think there is a lot of um, people oh, that yeah. are are I mean people that are concerned about what they're wearing how they look. I think there's a lot of other people that sit around and are concerned about what other people are wearing yeah. too, and and. It's another side, yeah. And I think, you know, I think we just need to love, teach the word, teach the truth, allow the Holy Spirit to do a work. And I think if the Holy Spirit's working in someone's mm-hmm. heart, chances of them wearing something inappropriate mm-hmm. are probably pretty slim. I remember reading a story about Amy Carmichael who was
2: in India. And the women there would wear a whole lot of bracelets and jewelry. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, like that was status symbol. And she really wanted to address it, but she didn't. She didn't want to turn them away. She mm. really didn't quite know what to do. So she just prayed about it, mm. and she just kept giving them the gospel and teaching them. And she said, on their own, they decided that these bracelets were not too much. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So yeah. that was. You know, so
0: the
3: Holy Spirit worked on that. Yeah. Yes. Without her saying it directly. That's sweet. I think Chuck Smith said that early on in his ministry to give room for the Holy Spirit. Huh. You know, just to, because people do change when when they come in contact with it, for sure. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, maybe some other ideas would be, you know, forceful teaching about tithing, a certain mm-hmm. amount, mm-hmm. Um, Good one. drinking, smoking. Dancing.
1: <laughs> can Christians dance? Some Christians can dance. <laughs> so.
0: All right. Uh, so we have this story here. Then verse 39, it says, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you clean the, cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Now, Jesus is not against the cleansing of the outside of the cup. You know, that's fine. You know, and um, yourself up a little bit, and there's going to be exterior things that we do, certainly here. But the Pharisees were missing the point, that the initial cleansing ritual, even, even where this came from, and I suspect what happened is this, that there was some Old Testament type of rule about cleansing, and then a little bit was added, a little bit was added, next thing you know, eggshells and pinkies and, and so on and so forth, and you're going down this path here, and Jesus is saying that the initial cleansing ritual was designed to focus the person that was washing their hands on the fact, look, I can't wash my heart, but I'm doing this outward sign as part of an inward work, I'm kind of like a baptism or something like that. Um, and these guys, they were so diligent about maintaining this appearance of righteousness, which is the point is you're not really dealing with where true righteousness comes from, and that's a changed heart. So then he adds, you fools, did not he who make the outside make the inside also? But give as alms, alms are an offering. Give as an offering those things that are within. Mm-hmm. And behold, everything then is clean for you. You know, Jesus ultimately, offer a pure heart, not just pure hands or face or whatever it may be. Offer that pure heart. He goes, on. Oh, what are you Pharisees? You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others and again the point is not that you can't tithe and, and these things and um, and all that, but you're more th- missing the point of it. Uh, tithing is designed I think among other things to break us of our self-centeredness is to get us outside of my money and so on and to get us out of that. Uh, and these guys had become so focused on the act of tithing that they lost the point of tithing. Um, And again, they were hyper-focused on outward appearance of obedience, and yet they weren't allowing God to impact and change their hearts. Notice Jesus, in that verse, he said, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's not saying that tithing is wrong, he's not saying that cleansing is wrong, or whatever, but what is wrong is that they're not showing love and they're not showing mercy. And... The person that is a legalist, like these Pharisees are, they want people to know. You, ever, you guys ever watch Seinfeld? I don't know if you ever watched it. There's a scene in one of the movies or TV shows where... You watch
3: that?
1: I, I, I've heard it, yeah. Somebody told me about it. Um, but
0: there's a scene in one of the shows where George is going to give a tip to the man at the yeah. pizza parlor or something. And just as he's dropping the dollar in the can, the man turns away. And... George lets it go, but the guy didn't see that he gave him a tip. So now George is like, I want the guy to know that I gave a tip. So the guy's still in the back room, and George reaches in to take his dollar out to drop it back in. Well, the man sees George take a dollar out and thinks he's stealing the money here. So George didn't want to give a tip for the sake of giving a tip. He wanted to be seen for giving a tip. And, And that's really what the legalist wants. They want to be seen for their righteous deeds, if you will, and just how obedient they are to God and, and all these sorts of uh, things. They want people to know how much they love God by the attention to the minute details that they pay. But what would you say, from your knowledge of scripture scripture, what is the real indicator of God's work in our lives that people can observe?
2: Humility? Okay. You bring
0: people to the okay. The spirit. No tree binds fruit, so on. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking of John thirteen thirty five, 35. Um, and I agree with all the answers that were said. But thirteen thirty five says, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have one for another. Okay. So not by the clothes that you wear and not by the seeds that you tithe out there and all these sorts of things. Not by all these actions, but again, you know, they neglected these things. Remember what Jesus said? These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You neglect justice and the love of God in order to do these other things here. They didn't demonstrate love and mercy to people. 43, what are you Pharisees? For you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Now the best seats in the synagogue, some churches actually do this. It would be those seats right up on the platform those seats that look out at the crowd. you know, So the person sits there the whole time, the pastor's over there, or whomever is over there speaking. you know. And these are the people that would be seen, they would be observed. People would say, how'd they get up there? I'd like to be up there. Uh, and so on and so forth. Um, that's the super spiritual Jew, the one who gets to sit up there. Uh, and sadly for these Pharisees, that became their motivation toward godliness. I, I need to re- continue to be a Pharisee so people will know who I am, they'll acknowledge me. Um, and you might say their thinking was, what good is it to be righteous if nobody notices it? Well, again, we don't do it to be noticed by others. We do it to be in a right place with God. And so, really, you have to ask for Pharisees and anybody that does that to be seen by others. What's your real motivation? You know? And why is it that you're a Pharisee or this religious leader here? Because you like to be greeted and you like to be noticed and everybody say hi to you and call you reverend and so on and so forth. I don't like to be called reverend, by the way. Um, Verse 44, (laughs) woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, Numbers 19 tells us that a grave should be marked because if a person did walk over it, they were unclean for seven days. And so that's why they whitewashed the stones and stuff. uh, Just so that everyone would know, they would stay away. You went near, that's your fault. You know It was clearly marked. Well, so a person that walks over a grave unknowingly is defiled. Jesus is saying, you're defiling people, Pharisees. Your lifestyle, your actions, your teachings are actually defiling people and leading them astray from a relationship with God because they're teaching them falsely. Notice the one lawyer, he says, Teacher, you insult us in saying these things. And, you know, the answer is sometimes we need to be insulted. By the Lord. Sometimes the Lord has to convict us. And if he never is, and we're never being stretched, then we're not, we're not growing. And so you insult us. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Well, sometimes people are going to be offended. You know, what Paul writes about in, I think it's in Timothy maybe, in one of the Timothys or Titus, but he talks about in the last days, you know, people are going to accumulate amongst themselves uh, teachers that will tickle their ears. You know, just everyone's saying some nice things. Maybe I'll throw in a little, you know, you could be a little nicer to the coffee lady. You know, some little th- sin like that, not that big a deal. But for the most part, everyone walks away feeling good about themselves and so on. Well, sometimes we need to be uh, confronted by the Lord. Huh? You need to stay positive. I just think we need to stay positive. <laughs> Too much negativity in the world. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourself did not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, these lawyers, they're not lawyers like our day. They're not attorneys in that sense. But these are experts in the law whose job it was to know the law and how it applied. And so, uh, you know, it may not say A, B, C, and D in the Old Testament, but they're able to take the A that is there and explain to you what B, C, and D is. You know, so they, how it applies They scrutinized the law. They write, they gave their interpretations of the law. But sadly, what they began to do is began adding to the law. All these rules and regulations that had to be followed. And the problem was, it created a burden on the people. And now people don't even like being a Christian or being a Jew, whatever it may be, because these things were impossible for them to do. So let me give you a couple examples of these, okay? One teaching that was coming out in Jesus' day, It taught that on the Sabbath, a man could not carry something in his right hand or in his left hand, across his chest, or on his shoulder. But you could carry something with the back of your hand, with your foot, with your elbow, or in your ear. I don't know how you do that. Your hair, or in the hem of your shirt, or in your shoe, or in your sandal. You know, so you're like, okay, all these things. Uh, That makes life a little hard. Here's another one. On the Sabbath, you were forbidden to tie a knot, except a woman could tie a knot in her girdle. So, if a bucket of water had to be raised from a well, you could tie a rope to the bucket. You couldn't tie a rope to the bucket, but a woman could tie her girdle to the bucket to get that bucket of water. Um, That's ridiculous. Rabbis took the command to respect proper sanitation in the army camp, of Israel that's found in Deuteronomy 23 and they applied it to Jerusalem because they said Jerusalem was the camp of the Lord Well, this interpretation when that was combined with Sabbath travel restrictions It resulted in a prohibition against going to the bathroom on the Sabbath <coughs> Because you put the two together there and so well, that's a burden needless to say <laughs> I think. Um, I think yeah. well, curiously many of these same rules didn't apply to these Pharisees or some of the rules didn't apply to the Pharisees and so they were putting on a burden on others but not themselves well, 47, woe to you, you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed so these guys, they give the impression they're these wonderful wonderful Jews they give commemorative parades, if you want to say for the prophets of old and all that, and they set up grand monuments to the prophets of old But the reality is it was their dads, their fathers, that actually killed these prophets here. Their fathers were supposedly speaking for God, but they had no real knowledge of God. Uh, And those who did, uh, Jeremiah and others, they rejected those. Uh, And in some cases,
2: they actually killed them. Um, So were there Pharisees and Sadducees before the exile? No, no, I don't think... No. No. I don't think they were. Okay, they were scribes, for sure. Yes,
0: but not Pharisees. Okay.
2: But He's just saying you were in the, in the style of the legalists. Yeah.
0: Okay. And in the sense of rejecting. You, you think you're speaking for God, mm-hmm. and yet you're rejecting the one God ascended uh, and killing the one God ascending. And so, here they are honoring these dead prophets who, like, they're people just like them killed. And yet they're rejecting living prophets, Jesus and others, that are amongst them. So 48, your witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build tombs. Uh, they wouldn't need these tombs if the fathers didn't kill them. I mean, obviously they would die anyway. But anyway, moving on. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I'll send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they'll kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against them. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now, it says, therefore, also the wisdom of God said, and then it's like a quote. This isn't an Old Testament quote. Um, If you read the passage in Matthew chapter 23, uh, you see it's kind of stated a little more clearly. The one doing the quoting is Jesus, where it talks about the wisdom of God. Uh, Colossians refers to Jesus as the wisdom of God. Um, Gives the example of Abel. And to Zechariah, interesting, A to Z, you know, from beginning to end. It's really interesting. Abel, if you will, was the first of the prophets killed uh, there in the book of Genesis as uh, his sacrifice kind of testified against Cain's. Zechariah, we read of Zechariah, there's a book called Zechariah, but we read of Zechariah in Second Chronicles 24. Second Chronicles was the last Old Testament book chronologically. So from the first book... To so the last book, that's Jesus' point, uh, that they rejected the prophets all along, and he said they're going to do the same thing ultimately to him, that is, reject him and crucify him. Woe to you lawyers! You've taken away the key to knowledge of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves, and you're hindering those who were entering. So here, Jesus is teaching; people are responding, and now these guys come along and they're leading people astray because of the rebellion. Um, he says, "Woe to those!" Remember James chapter three. It says, the one who desires to be a teacher should beware. Uh, They will incur a stricter judgment. You know, these guys here should beware because woe, he says, because they're leading people astray who are trusting them to have the answers. And 53, as he went away from there, the scribes, Pharisees, they began to press him hard, and so on. And clearly their intention is no longer to learn from Jesus, but to just pepper him with questions, hoping he'll misspeak, he'll say something wrong you know, they always talk about George Bush, you know, always saying the wrong thing, you know, oftentimes making up words and things like that. And, uh, you know, it became kind of humorous. And he said, look, I I have a feeling if we put a microphone on every one of you every day, all day, you guys would probably say some funny things, too. You know, and and here they're just trying to get you, just keep the guy talking. Eventually, he'll say either something wrong that we can get him on, or, He'll say something that disagrees with our kind of our cultural practices, and then we'll get them on that. So they're not really here to learn from him, they want to get him. Um, and it's interesting because they had just been confronted by Jesus, now they want to get Jesus, they want to respond in that particular way rather than receiving correction. You know, I, I just found a couple of verses here <laughs> Proverbs 12 it says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof. Stupid. I, don't, I read that I was on a, on a trip in Israel, and they had me read Proverbs twelve on the bus ride one time. Mm-hmm. So I read it, and it said stupid. And, I'm, and in our family, we say, you know, don't say stupid; it's a bad word or whatever. You know, when the kids are like little, even now. Um, so I, I was like, oh shit! I think I said a bad word. You know. <laughs> anyway, Proverbs fifteen: A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. The wise one receives correction. Now, sometimes the way people say things are wrong, but the things they say are right. And I think a good question or a good statement that we can make to ourselves is, is there a bit of truth in what that person has to say? And that we would learn from that. Um, we receive correction. These guys are not ready to receive any correction, and unfortunately, it's gonna be to their detriment. Okay?